The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading this morning is in 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning in verse 5 and ending in verse 14. Um, there are Bibles that are scattered underneath some of the chairs, but the scripture will also be on the screen behind me, hopefully. And the Philistines mustered to fight, oh, excuse me, page 234, if you want to follow along in the, um, in the Bibles underneath your chairs. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the, sand on, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. But the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to greet him. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within, within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have, sought, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is the word of God. All right. So by way of introduction, my name is John Glenn Denning. Um, God was pleased uh, about a year ago to lead my wife and I to come here and fellowship and be part of your fellowship. Uh, we have four grown children, three of whom are married and out of the nest. Uh, a uh, daughter who's mostly gone, uh, she goes to Anderson University, uh, is going to be a senior there. And then we have our very most favorite niece, that's named Claire, living with us as well. So, any event, nice to meet you. And uh, Randy gave me the opportunity here to minister from the Word of God, so I'm looking forward to it, and the rest of y'all, well, too bad. <laughs> any event. Um, what I'd like to look at is this particular chapter in three dimensions. The first is the history, to go through what has occurred in this particular chapter, what happened before, and how did we get to this point? And then what can we learn from this particular uh, chapter in terms of looking at this person named Saul? Um, I'm not big in, on, on uh, sermon titles, but if I had to give it a title, I'd say this, this is lessons learned from a bad decision. And we'll learn about that. And then the last thing is, what is there a practical thing that we can take 
here in 21st century North America, specifically in O'Ree County, South Carolina, what can we put into place? What can we put into action? What can we learn? What's profitable? As scripture teaches us in 2 Timothy, what's profitable for us right now? So the first thing is to look at the chapter. And the, this particular chapter begins with a, with a kind of confusing thing. I'm going to spend about 30 seconds talking about it. And there is something called a textual variant. It says in, your, uh, uh, in the ESV, I believe, that wasn't read, but it says that Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, the following occurred. And really, there's something, uh, we're reading a document that was written about 2,800 years ago. And unfortunately, they don't have the actual copies that were written. In fact, they have copies from about 1,500 years ago. Now, they're, they're really good copies, but occasionally, and especially if you know anything about Hebrew, there's confusing things as to what occurs in the word. My particular translation that I use, the New American Standard, the NIV, says that Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. So it's not confusing. We could spend all morning and probably next three or four mornings talking about it. doesn't matter. God's word is true and accurate. In the original autographs that were written, it is absolutely infallible. But the in, in our English translations, sometimes there are these little tiny mess-ups, if you will, or things that we don't, not mess-ups, but things that we don't have the full information about. So when you see verse 1 and you say, he was one year old and then he reigned for two, what's up with that? He wasn't one year old when he reigned. He was about 30, which is typical for a king in Israel. Any of it, enough said about that. The, the, the scenario is at this point in time that Israel was under the thumb of these guys called Philistines. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, and if I had the PowerPoint with me, which I don't, but if you look at the map of Israel, they're on the um, eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, and along the coast is a group of people called Philistines. Historically, these guys probably came out of Greece or northern uh, Mediterranean, and they came here probably around year zero, year 100-ish. And they were a real fierce people. They kind of subdued everything that they had over them. Uh, it, it says when the children of Israel were led out of Egypt that God said, we won't take them through the land of the Philistines because they'll get, they'll get discouraged because they're going to have to fight these people and they're really fierce. So that's one reason he led them all the way around and, and farther uh, a bit. But in any event, the Israelis were under the, the thumb of this people called the Philistines. I remember back in the day, several uh, weeks ago, where Jonathan Shanks talked about this idea that they um, had brought the Ark of the Covenant and it went to the Philistines because they had lost the war. And then they won the war in chapter 7, we see. That was probably in the order of about uh, 30 or 40 years prior to the time in this particular uh, chapter that we see. It's difficult to pin down. But they were the occupying force. They were the group. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why the people wanted a king named Saul. Not named Saul, but they wanted a king. They wanted someone to lead them into battle. They wanted someone to, to be their champion, to go out ahead of them and fight against people like the Philistines and the Ammonites and other, these other groups that they were living in the midst. They were living in a bad neighborhood, let's put it that way. And they wanted someone to kind of take charge and, and be their leader and, and defend them. And so uh, Saul 
started out pretty well. In chapter 11, we read about this war he had with this group called the Ammonites. Now, they were kind of in the eastern portion. They were kind of like where Syria is now today, on the eastern portion of, uh, of Israel, away from the Philistines. Again, Philistines by the sea, Israel in the middle, Ammonites on the right. And he did well. And he, but he had a force of 300,000 people to take with him. So he did well. He started out good. He was their king. He was going to lead the charge. He was going to ride the white horse. He was going to go out ahead of them. He was going to defend them from all the bad things that could happen to them in the neighborhood where they lived. And so uh, he started out well, but then didn't finish so well. And there were some, some bad decisions that he made. And this particular chapter describes one of those bad decisions. Saul and, and his son, Jonathan. Jonathan was probably about 25 at this time. They're kind of maintaining, as we see in the start in, chapter, in verse 2, of, of this particular uh, chapter. And they were not really warring against. They were not really defending. There was kind of a status quo. And then Jonathan gets this idea. He says, you know, we've got to break out. We own. God has given us this land. That's what was the promise, right? God has given us this land. We've got to do something about it to take it back from these Philistines. We've got to war against them. And so Jonathan... Saul's son, probably 25 years old at this point in time, he decides, you know, the problem with, I'm 60, the problem with my age is I have all these cultural references that the young folks don't know anymore. But there was this really nice, interesting set of movies called Lethal Weapon. And they had a character named Mel Gibson in it, right? Jonathan's the Mel Gibson of his time. And you'll see next week, whoever's, I think... Uh, uh, Justin's doing chapter 14, you'll see that Jonathan says, you know, I'm going to go out and pick a fight. And so he does. He goes out and picks a fight with his group of people in a place called, with these Philistines who are stationed in Geba. And um, he goes out um, to pick this fight, and the Philistines come against them with this incredible large army. Again, there's difficulties a little bit with the numbers, but they describe the army as like the sand of the seashore. It's not just a little division here and a little company there and 10,000 people there. We're talking 100,000, 200,000, and completely overwhelming. There was no way that they were going to fight against this people because as we learn later in the chapter, the Philistines, as part of their neutralization policy against Israel. What did they do? They said, we're going to take away all the blacksmiths. We're going to take away all the people that can create weapons. We're going to get rid of all the gun makers, if you will. We're going to get rid of all the people that can arm Israel with weapons that can attack us. And that's what we learned in the last three or four verses of this chapter. And so Israel sees this enormous army, and they got nothing to fight with. And so what do they do? They scurry and they hide, and they run away. <laughs> Again, you know, um, they're, they're Monty Python, right? You know, <laughs> what do we do? Run away. But in any event, um, so they run away, and they're, they're hiding their way. In fact, some of them get out of the country. They're just gone. They go across the Jordan as far east as they can go to get away from this enormous force that Jonathan has ticked off. It's interesting, too. It says, I think, in verse 3 or 4, that the word went out 
that Saul had picked this fight. He didn't. It was Jonathan that picked the fight. But there is this, this idea you see in, in various places where Saul has this inferiority complex, if you will, and it's his name that's going to be in the billboard. It's his name that's going to go out front. It's his name that's going to be the one that's like lifted up because he's the king. But it's Jonathan that actually created the fight. But in any event, that's for more, more for Justin next week. So um, Saul doesn't necessarily run away all the way. He runs to a place called Gilgal, which is on the Jordan River. It's uh, maybe about 20 miles east of where he was. And he takes his force. He starts out with about 2,000 people. He had 300,000 when he went against uh, Jabesh earlier on against the Ammonites. He's down to 2,000. Again, perhaps 10 years after that fact, 15 years after that fact. And he's going there, and he's going to, to kind of um, get his forces together to go against this sand of the seashore. And, um, and he goes there, and uh, he's waiting. He's waiting seven days, because earlier, in chapter 10, Samuel had said, look, there's going to come a time in your life there's going to come an event that's going to happen where you're going to go to Gilgal. When you get there, wait seven days. And I'm going to come join you. And then we'll work together and we'll, we'll fight God's fight. But you got to wait. You got to wait for me to arrive in Gilgal. So they go to Gilgal and, and he's there. And he waits for Samuel to arrive. One day, two day, three day, four day. Sounds easy, right? We've all been in situations where we've had to wait five days, six days, seven days, mostly. <laughs> and then he says, certain things are occurring. I've got to, to get on and going. So Samuel literally says he forces himself to do this religious activity to get God's favor. He offers this burnt offering. And he's going to get God's favor, who's going to defend him and help him win this war. But Samuel said, wait for me. And he didn't. He made a bad decision. Now, well, we'll get more into it in a bit. There are, you might say, come on, it wasn't that. He waited most of the time, six and a half days, 6.8 days, 6.95 days. He waited almost the whole time. God had said seven days. And God is a holy God. There's not gray with him. There's black and there's white with God. There's truth and there's falsehood. There's goodness and there's badness. There's holiness and there's sinfulness. And God is holy. And you know, we want a holy God, really, in our heart of hearts. We don't want a God who plays favorites and says, yeah, everyone who's got a, a beard is cool and without a beard, not so much. So Danny and Patrick and myself and a couple others, James, you know, we're gonna be in all good shape. No, we don't, we want a God who is absolutely, perfectly pure and holy. He's a God that we can depend on to know what's right and what's wrong. And he's a God that will always provide goodness and rightness to us. And so God says, wait seven days. Saul didn't. It was a task he had to do. What if God had said, look, I want you to go out and do 
the following things, X, Y, Z, and he only did X and Y, it'd be the same effect, the same issue, that God said something and Saul didn't do it. And Saul knew it was clear. We'll see in, in, that he knew that he was supposed to wait. He knew when Samuel arrived that I forced myself to do it early before you arrived here. He knew it was wrong, and yet he did it. It was a bad decision. And what's the effect of that decision? He loses his dynasty. For Samuel 13, verse 13 to 14 said, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. Jonathan was saving it for his kid, right? Jonathan, Mel. He was saving it for the, this dynasty. He was the first king and the normal thing with a king, right? You got the kids and then the grandkids and then the great-grandkids and so on that take over this kingdom. That's the way kingdoms work. But Samuel, because of this bad decision, because of this wrong thing he did because of his failure to follow God's command, Samuel said, your kingdom will end with you. Your dynasty will not endure. The Lord has sought out man for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord has anointed him as ruler. So at the end of the chapter, in this chapter 13, the, the Philistines are more entrenched than ever. Before they only had an outpost in one place. Now they've got an outpost post in raiding parties. And there, you'll see later in chapters 15 and 16, 17, where they're coming out and challenging Israel and saying, look, you guys fight with us. And they have this guy who's like eight feet tall to come out and lead the charge um, against them. And of course, we know the rest of the story, David and Goliath, right? That's the basic overview of this story, that, that a challenge is made. Saul fails to meet the challenge. He does not do what he's commanded God judges them for it, and uh, that's what we come to learn. Now, one, I enjoy history. I read books on history, but again, I'm an old guy, so what do I know, right? Uh, <laughs> so, but why should we go through this? Why are we going through 1 Samuel and this idea of this old history? What does it have to do with us? Well, what the, how the Bible works is it tells stories through events and people, mostly, almost exclusively, through people. You can look at the whole books of the Bible right up to now, and there's only about 20 people that the Bible really focuses on. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, seven or eight judges, Eli, Samuel, and we learn stories from each of these guys. What did they do well? What did they do wrong? What pleased God? What didn't please God? There's a quote that I was looking for and searching, couldn't find it. I believe it actually originated with a philosopher named Kant. And the, the, the quote is this, that we living in our time, and pretty much any time, that there is a prejudice against antiquity that we think that we are modern and smart and we have everything, we've got Snapchat. We've got all the modern stuff. That, and those guys didn't. Those, those guys lived in this old time and they, had, they have no clue what we're going through. And that's absolutely incorrect. All these people, okay, they didn't have Snapchat, but then again, no, neither do I. 
They, they, I've never sent a tweet in my life. Um, they didn't have all this stuff, but they had the same challenges. They had the same frustrations. They had the same difficulties. They had the same annoyances. Not exactly the same. No, they didn't you know, have people that uh, drove, drove the speed limit. Oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. Uh, they didn't have people that drove slowly down the road. <laughs> sorry. Uh, uh, they, they didn't have things and in our, in our modern society that, that kind of create even more annoyances in some way. But they had the same desires, the same issues, the same challenges, the same problems, the same familial conflicts, the same relationship issues that we have. And we can learn from them through this history. And that's why we're going through 1 Samuel, so we can learn from Eli, from Samuel, from Saul, and eventually from David. And it's really all about the people and what they do. Uh, during this time. So that's why we learn history. Um, up to this point, Saul's character, man, it's a little bit of a time warp, sorry. <laughs> Saul's character has been good and strong, and, and again, he fought the Ammonites. He won against them. And um, it, it seemed like he'd started off strong, and 300,000 men to go and attack them. But now he's kind of dwindling down. Next week, Justin's going to talk about chapter 14 and, and, and a war that they have with, with the Philistines. And it talks about this idea that Saul was sitting under the, the pomegranate tree. Now, that means nothing to y'all. We don't have pomegranates here. But when you go to Israel, it's all over the place. And this is kind of, think about someone kind of kicking back, eat, drinking their tropical smoothie. Almost every corner in Jerusalem has the pomegranate guy with the pomegranate juicer machine selling antioxidants that pomegranates have to offer. Any event, but I digress. Uh, Saul was kicking back. He wasn't going out. He wasn't charging against God's enemy. He wasn't taking the land for the people. He was sitting back and he was taking it easy. And so to some degree, I had a description here of him being all hat. I don't know if you know that thing. In Texas, you know, where people wear big hats, sometimes people with big hats, that's all they are. Is just a big hat. There's no reality. There's no substance to them. And that's kind of what Saul was like. There was no substance to him. We'll see uh, later in, the, in 1 Samuel, we'll see just the weakness of this character and the, the immaturity, if you will, the, the, this inferiority complex he had and the ways that he did things. He actually put out a death warrant against his son. Didn't know that his son had done something, but he made a really dumb decision in the next chapter where he says, don't eat until we kill all our enemies. But Jonathan ate under penalty of death. Dumb decision. But um, in any event, uh, in, this character, in this chapter, Samuel appears to be doing what he's supposed to do, but he goes and waits. Um, he goes and, and does it wrong. He doesn't follow. Again, if you go back to chapter uh, 10, Um, Samuel, when he anointed Saul, said, there'll be an event that occurs where you're going to, to Gilgal, wait for me, and we will come to sacrifice. So he does, um, but he doesn't wait. There's a couple problems here. First, besides waiting, Saul was not a priest. Saul was not, did not have the religious authority. Back in Old Testament times, God set up some very specific chains of command, if you will. Very specific um, things that people should do. 
And one of them was that the priest was the one who offered the sacrifice. In the New Testament, in this new uh, relationship that we have with God, the, the New Testament teaches that we are all priests, believers, and priests unto God. Uh, but in the Old Testament times, only certain people could offer this offering. But what had happened? So Saul was remembering back to the last big victory they had over the Philistines, chapter 7, where Samuel had led the people against them. And what had he done? He had offered this burnt offering. Saul looks on and he sees this thing that occurred, or if he hadn't been there, he heard about this event that occurred. He offered the burnt offering, and there was this huge victory at the end of chapter 7 over the Philistines. And you just imagine what went on, one plus one in Saul's mind. He didn't see the reality behind the offering. He just said, hmm, I'm in trouble. Philistines are ganging up. They're going to come and, and take our land and, uh, and, and do bad things. What did Samuel do? Offer an offering. I'll do the same thing. Come on up here. He, he says, let's do this and, and get it going so God can be, um, that we can make, uh, get God, get God on our side. It's interesting when Samuel shows up immediately after this offering is, is given, Samuel's there within seven days. Immediately Samuel shows up and Saul, of course, you know, you'd think that the, the right thing to do what one would hope that each of us would do is, you're right, Samuel, I screwed up. I messed up. I should have waited. I did wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. What can you do to, uh, to make me right with God? But he didn't. He came up with five excuses, five excuses for what he had done wrong. It says in, um, in this chapter 13, what have you done, asked Samuel? Verse 11, Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering. It's not my fault, it's the people's fault. They wouldn't stay with me. I was there, I was ready to wait, but not them. So I had to you know, cater to them. I had, it's their, the people's fault. Uh, what have you done? When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time. You weren't here. Well, you're here now, and oh, by the way, it is still within seven days, but you didn't show up at six and a half days, or six days, or five days, or four days, and so on. You took your sweet time to show up. It's not my fault, it's yours, Samuel. Fault of the circumstances, the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Our enemy was gathering. They were ready to come down and slaughter and annihilate us, and I think that's something important to understand. This is, we can't make this so easy for us to get down on Saul and say we would not have done the same thing because all but certainly we might have, would have. I probably would have. Because we're faced with this huge obstacle and we're seeing this big problem, let's get something done rather than waiting. Let's get, do something. Let's take some form of action. I saw what happened with Saul back in the day, it should work with me as well, shouldn't it? And, and so we, we have to understand it was an enormous problem. It was an enormous situation that Saul was facing. But it didn't excuse, it didn't make it right. And that's the, the difficulty in our own lives. We're faced with difficult challenges, 
difficult problem and more often, or perhaps most of all, difficult people. Difficult people, different relationships, whether within the family or at work or with friends or from a history, we're faced with these huge, difficult challenges called other people. And so we respond in our own way. Well, I know that God wants me to forgive them, but you know, this is enormous and this is huge. How in the world can I get over this? This was a big problem for Saul, but he was still supposed to wait. And he did wait almost all the time. Another excuse and rationalization that God had to be bought off. Philistines were coming down against me at Gilgal, and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. I've not done the religious stuff. I've not checked off the boxes to make God on my, to put God on my side. So I forced myself because it's religious rights. It must be a good thing. I go to church. That must be a good thing. That checks the box with God. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, And so um, Saul doesn't respond. You know, David screwed up. David, Saul's successor, Goliath fame and all that, the next king of Israel, he messed up royally. And again, we have this prejudice against antiquity. Think about David. Just He's king. He's not going out doing what he's supposed to do. He sees this very attractive woman, decides he's got to have her, does have her. Kid ensues. He decides, so that's kind of a problem, right? But the husband's out battling. So he sends a telegram or whatever, sends an email to his general. And he says, okay, when you go and fight this next battle, when you fight this next battle, I want you to take this guy, Uriah, and I want you to put him in the most vulnerable place where he's going to get killed. David's general said, are you sure? (laughs) Please repeat your last. Are you positive? You know he's going to get killed. Yeah, I know. Do it anyway. I'm the king. And he does it. That's what David did. That's what... (laughs) These guys messed up royally. And and there's two things about this that if you forget anything else, just hear these two things. The first is God, in spite of how badly David messed up and and did evil things. He committed adultery. He committed uh, murder by doing this. God still loved David. You know, there's these signs you see in the internet, God hates this, God hates that, God hates that. They are anti-Christian. It says that when we, it says in the New Testament, when we were yet sinners, when we were still messing up, when we were still goofing up, when we were still denying God, when we were still fighting against God and putting our fist up to him, when we were still not honoring God, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing thought. And if you think of nothing else this week from this talk, and of course, maybe see lethal weapon is a back. But um, if you think of nothing else this week, think of that. That no matter how badly I mess up, how poorly I do, how evil I can be, God still loves me enough that he sent his son to die for me. 
And the second thought is that, that God still uses flawed people. He used Saul to, uh, for a period of time. Saul remained king and led the people, even though there was a number of bad decisions. We'll see later at the end of 14 where, where Saul does kind of consolidate and give Israel a measure of peace. But, um, but God still used David in spite of it all, in spite of the problems, in spite of the things. So when David was... Um, when David was accused of this error, of this mistake, of this sin, did he rationalize it? Well, you know, I can't help it. I'm just a guy. Guys do stupid things. Uh, and, you know, I, didn't, I wanted to save her from, you know, complications, things like that, so that's why I killed him. And there's these excuses. I don't know how you can come an excuse for killing someone, but that's another story. Uh, what did David respond? Against you... He says in Psalm 51, you only to God have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He repented. He agreed with God that what he had done was wrong. And that's really one of the first steps as we do goof up. It says in 1 John that if we confess our sins, if we admit to God, he already knows we've sinned. <laughs> There's no point hiding it. God knows. He knows the desire. He knows more about you than you know about you. He knows about the, the nasty things that run around in our heads and in our hearts. He knows about even when we're trying to do good things, we do bad things. That even when we're trying to do good things, we're doing it because we are trying to get a name or reputation for ourselves, or we're trying to get act, uh, people to love us more or whatever messed up reason. That even when we do good things, it's still for bad motives so often. But God still loves us. And he still allows us to serve him. It's a wonderful thing. In any event, let's be more like David and not like Saul and the rationalizations for mistakes that we make. So what do we learn from this experience with Saul? Again, what is, is our... Um, when we have a problem, do we go through the rote of religious activities? Do we say, well... I'll go to church this morning and God will check off the, the good box for me today. Um, after this sermon, we'll have an opportunity, a sacred opportunity for those of us who are believers to take part of the bread and the cup and to remind ourselves it was his body that was broken and damaged and punished for me because of my sin, because of my mess-ups, because of my doing wrong things. Christ died. And his blood that sheds and gives me entry into heaven so that we can then call to God and say, Abba, Daddy, Father, and know that God will take care of us and provide for us. Is it, or is it just religious activity? Church, bread, cup, sing, done for the week. And I'm suggesting to you, it, it, we need to see the reality behind these religious activities, religious activities don't count for nothing. But it's the reality behind them that we need to understand and recognize in what we do. Um, another thing is, God gave Saul a command. Go there, wait seven days, and I will come to you. He gave it through Samuel. This is what he was supposed to do. So the question is, what commands of God should we be doing? 
Now, if you're not a believer this morning, the answer is that you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in who he is, God. Believe in who we are, sinners. Believe in what he's done, die in our place on the cross of Christ. It says in Colossians that the accusation against us, the, the charges, the indictment against us, were, were nailed to his cross. You know, when they crucified people, they put their, what they're dying for above them. You know, murderer, thief, X, Y, Z. On top of cross of Jesus Christ, cross, John Glendening, really not such a good person. And bore you with this, or embarrass me with all the details of that. But um, what commands of God are we following or not following? Well, again, the time doesn't permit. Um, but try this one out. There's this little verse, you may have read, remind, uh, remember it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallow means to revere, to lift up, to glorify. I think there's a Greek word, doxa, or something like that about that. <laughs> glorify your name. So one of the things that we should do, a command of God, is that we should glorify him, lift him up in everything we say and do. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we do something, we say, God bless you. But when we are reviled, as it says in, second, in 1 Peter, when we are insulted, we don't return that insult. We live in a very coarse society where God's name is taken in vain all the time. We don't, we're, our mouth, as it says in Colossians, I believe, should, we should be free of vulgar speaking. People should recognize and understand we're Christians by our vocabulary and by how we say it and what we say. Um, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Do we want to see God's kingdom uh, come to earth? Your will be done. And God has his will for each of us. Uh, his, uh, his plan on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And here's the big one for a lot of people, including myself. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us. God's got plenty of commands um, there. So in any event, in closing, there's a lot you can learn from the historical books of the Old Testament. First Samuel is one of those. Looking at the characters, what they did. Don't look at these as just old people that had no meaning. These people lived lives in exactly the same way we do. They ate, they slept, they, they interacted with people. They had the same kind of thinking, the same kind of challenges, the same kind of frustrations, the same kind of, of annoyances as we do, except for Snapchat, Twitter, and Instagram. But they... They, they did. They, and so we can look and see how they honored God and how they didn't honor God and attempt and strive to do our best to do the former and not the latter. And then the last thing is, what has God commanded us? What has he commanded you? Each of you all know. I don't, and it's different for each of us that God wants us to be forgiving in unforgivable situations but he forgave us our sin. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. He wants us to be glorifying him in the things we say and the things we do. He wants us to recognize our failings and, and own them. 
and admit them and recognize them. Understand God knows about them already (laughs) and acknowledge them to God. And he will, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then no matter what, as I said, no matter how badly you've goofed up or I've goofed up, God still loves us. He's like a father. We do have the song that you're a good, good father, and he is. Just like our fathers, many of our fathers have loved us and provided for us or those that have taken the place of them. That's what, that's what I want the best for my kids, for my niece, to be, to live good lives that are peaceful and, and joyful and productive and, and something where they... Um, so God is a good, good father. Never forget that. Anyway, let's just close in prayer. Father and God, we thank you for these stories. Lord, you know our shortcomings in living in this modern age and thinking that nothing much interesting happened before about 15 minutes ago. You know our malady, our, our difficulty with that, but we recognize, Lord, that a lot of valuable things occurred back throughout this history, and you dealt with people, and you've explained how you dealt with them, and we've seen not only the beginning, but how, they, how it ended up as well. We pray, Lord, that we might glorify you in everything that we do, not as Saul, but rather as David. We just uh, thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you, most of all, that you love us so much to send your son, Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.